Hey, welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast that we're going to produce every single week, whether you are tuning in or not, just because we're going to binge the history that we didn't get to learn in school, and we're going to fight back against the system by learning it today. Down with the man. Uh, I'm Teresa. <laughs> I'm Angie. And uh, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. You guys are just... Uh, in. We're just uh, having a conversation and you you get to listen. <laughs> we, this week, I don't know if you know this, Angie, we had one listener in India and one in South Africa. I don't, they're not our moms because our moms are not in those countries. And I am fascinated that they are popping up on the map because it doesn't make sense and is very hilarious to me. I love that. And I can guarantee you it's not my mom. Um <laughs> So we're going to have to figure out who it is. I do have a friend in South Africa, though. You really? I do. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. And in a weird coincidence, he has a son who is like over six feet tall with bright red hair named Ethan. Do you is okay. Are you saying that you that Ethan's not your biologic or that Ethan obviously is your biological child? Is it are you do you share this son? Two separate entities entirely. This Ethan is like 15 years older than my Ethan. Okay. Crazy, right? But were you inspired to create your Ethan from his Ethan? No. However, when, um, so he, he was visiting from South Africa when I announced to the world that I was pregnant. So he's one of the first people to know. Okay. And then um, he went back home. And a couple years later, he, he brought his family out, or he brought his wife out for a visit, and he got to meet a two-year-old Ethan, and literally wept. And I said, "Why are you crying, Vernick?" And he said, "My son's name is Ethan, and he is also a bright red-headed boy." And so all of a sudden, it for him, it was like seeing his son all over again as as a toddler who is now a teenager. So. Fast forward three more years, Ethan is in kindergarten and Vernick brings his wife and his son back so he can meet. The Ethans can meet. It is the cutest picture. I have I think Ethan is like so excited. I was like meeting a celebrity for my Ethan because he got to meet another Ethan that matched. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Makes me so happy. You know, it's still hilarious to me that I edited a belch out of the last podcast and neither of us remember belching. I feel like it was me. I feel like it was me. Like because I can't I can't contain my yawns or my burps no matter how hard I try. But it's like I spent 5 minutes going over a second of audio going Is that could it maybe who did it? Huh. Weird. I blame Casper I mean, Friendly Ghost. Honestly, I think we'll just we'll just wait. You know, maybe I'll I'll have an entire blooper reel of just belches and yawns. Yeah, well, the yawns are kind of hard. You know, like I'll I'll need to get my computer to uh, let let me edit the video. That's that's a fun issue that I've been having still. Um, but I think it would just be great to have you know all of the yawns or the weird faces that we both make. Just. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, pause me one second. The the baby is screaming to get in. Just okay, a okay. moment. <laughs> 
Okay. For our listeners, the baby is a 15-pound uh, long-haired cat who genuinely thinks he is my youngest child. I mean, honestly, I was just going to edit all of that part out, you know, <laughs> oh, just good. call that sweet. We'll see, we'll see if it sticks now. <laughs> just just to clarify that I don't let my children just stand at the door and scream. Well, that's not true. If I'm in the bathroom, Ethan does, but he's 15. What are you going to do? A lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you don't believe me, send him to my house. Let him, let him try the shenanigans again. And- <laughs> He shall have, you know, a full report on what can and it should be done. Let <laughs> me come back. Wow. Um, Miss Teresa told me I could not just barge in on her. And I, I, did, I didn't know what to do. So I had to sit like a polite gentleman in the kitchen. I mean, okay. So Weird. My, my sister at one point, she, she told me like this, this really hilarious story about barging in on her roommate um, when she in college lived with a group of guys and she walked into the living or walked in from outside after work and one of her roommates was watching an adult film and she realized that she doesn't like this kind of um activity to walk in on like none of this is just something she wants to repeat and so she did like her brain said i don't want this to ever happen again and so i need to make sure my reaction matches that this this event so (laughs) she points and laughs at him maniacally and he (laughs) stops doing the other activities that he is doing um and she just walks out of the room laughing the entire time he didn't make eye contact with her for two weeks and she never had to to talk about it she never had to do anything about that activity ever again it just never repeated i love that for her i hate that she had to walk in on it um i i wish my brain thought that fast about how to handle things you know i don't know if my brain because i do similar things i don't have a story that magnificent um but i don't know if my brain is fast or if i just fixate on a bunch of really unfortunate experiences that everybody else has and i come up with all of these contingency plans on the what ifs and so when <laughs> something finally happens i open up the annals of my brain and go oh, oh. i've been preparing for this i've got exactly what to do my mate paul said Uh, I'm going to run this through the filter on how much therapy I think this individual should have as a result of my actions. And oh, (laughs) oh, that's the appropriate amount. Done. Go with it. (laughs) So I know this morning when I was up compulsively at 5 a.m. finishing my story um, (laughs) because I couldn't not add detail. Um, Same. Which is why I, I was up till 11 compulsively finishing my story right and now you know who the night person is and who the morning person is truth (laughs) truth because i i saw your messages this morning when i woke up and my first response was huh she just keeps writing even though i don't respond at like eight when i was already like unconscious my thought was eventually you'll get them you're not wrong Right, like I have, I th- I think that you're like me, and that you turn your phone, you your the like do not disturb on. Oh yeah, no. So yeah. 
I was not at all worried about waking you up, but I was so excited I had to start talking to somebody. Yeah. And Ian was already in bed too, so well, I, I couldn't text him. He would he would come he doesn't turn his do not disturb on. Mike doesn't turn his on either, but he also doesn't pay attention to it. So if in an emergency you need to get a hold of someone, try him because I will leave you for dead. <laughs> uh, I would say same uh, if it were my phone. Ian sleeps through his phone, but I wake him up because I don't sleep through his phone. Mm. Which is helpful because he's been called in to work in the middle of the night a handful of times and he would have never known had I not been like, dude, answer your phone. It's three in the morning. Right now is a good time to answer your phone. (laughs) If you don't cease that sound, I will cease your breathing. Which is also why I maintain the alarm clock because he understood very early in our relationship that um, he wanted to live past current age. Kurt, yeah, so um, he doesn't control the alarm clock. Mm. It's, the, it's the little things. <laughs> you know, I agree. And I think that's like kind of the most interesting thing when you hear like Michelle Obama talk about her marriage, right? Is it's just, she talks about, you know, what you need to give and all of the little things that add up and everything. And it's just a very like kind view because I'm I'm reading this going, you know, here she is, former first lady, and she has the same struggles with her husband. Many, I'll say many <laughs> of the same struggles. You know, my husband's never come home upset about decisions he needs to make that will impact Syria. Like those has those things have never happened. Different set of problems. Right. But <laughs> at the end of the day, you know, it's, you know, who does more work around the house? Who does more help with the kids? Who does homework? Who cooks dinner? Like, who mans the alarm clock? Right, like those simple <laughs> things, and it's like, okay, these are these are very human human issues. I, agreed, agreed. Yeah. Oh man, I kind of miss Obama. I'm just saying. I know the the, the babysitter's weird. Can you guys come home? <laughs> Mom. The babysitters, plural, have been weird. Can you come home? Where are you? <laughs> it's like it's like that text I get from my sons when I've been at the grocery store too long. What are you doing, mom? Where are you? Okay, well, first of all, I know they can see me on Find My Phone, so they know I'm still at the grocery store. But, you know. See, I treat every time I'm forced to leave my house to go shopping like I'm part of some sort of spy movie where I want to get in and get out and not get caught. Like I am there for the shortest amount of time. I okay, so I agree. I I 100% agree with that. And for the most part, um, that is exactly how I behave, except for I have this neurological need to read the packaging for everything. I just buy the exact same thing every single time. And then I don't have to do that. That's true. So on the things that I know, like that I've already read the packaging on, I don't have to do that. But like, if it's a new item that I'm looking for, or that I can't find the brand of the, you know, whatever. That puts me back like a half hour because I have to read everything. So we won't go shopping together. uh, That's why Ian does most of the shopping because I hate it. See, I Instacart everything. As soon as I realized that 
I could have the grocery store come to me done. Mm -hmm. I felt that way until Ian said, do you want somebody else picking your tri-tip? And then I was like, you mean they're going to put hands on my tri-tip? On the the plastic packaging. And many other hands have been there before. Yeah, but it was more like, that's my tri-tip at that point. Like, don't manhandle my tri-tip. Not so much that they were going to touch it. Like, I'm not grossed out by somebody else touching it. The plastic. But I was like, that's mine. What if you picked the wrong one? No, okay. So <laughs> you brought up something. We went to Chipotle yesterday uh, for lunch and I ordered, you know, two Mexican Cokes because they're the best Coca Colas. And I ended up like, oh, I didn't get the top because they're still cocaine. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be great? So I go back because like, I forgot to get the, the tops removed because we were eating there. And the worker says, well, do you want me to do it? Or do you want to, and she like is trying to hand me the the bottle opener. And I looked at her and I'm thinking, what? I mean, I, I can, or you can, doesn't matter to me. And she says, well, some people don't like me touching their drinks. And I'm thinking you just made my food. If I can't trust you with that, like, why am I concerned? And also, did you not just hand me the bottles moments before? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> I mean, I understand some people are germaphobes, but I feel like you should probably draw a line somewhere else. Like, I feel like that line is just a bit misplaced. It gets a little further past where you should have started your concern. Right. <laughs> like, and if we're at that level, you should just eat at home. People's is funny. Do you want to tell me your story? Oh, you want me to go first? Okay, well, I mean, because. Yeah. Gosh, I do. Okay, when you told me, when you gave me, I have been wanting to know since the second you gave me the clue. And I'm like, damn it, woman, spill the beans. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> years and years ago, I worked at a grocery or a grocery, I never worked at a grocery store. I worked at a jewelry store. And it was about this time that there was a string of articles that came out and articles about the person I'm getting ready to talk about. And it was just like, and this is why we handle jewelry this way. This is why we only pull out a limited number of pieces. This is why. And it was just, I then became like obsessed with this woman named Doris Payne. Doris Payne. 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 Okay. Okay. P-A-Y-N-E. Okay. She is the most notorious jewel thief. (laughs) And I absolutely love her and she is such a complex human like there's moments where you read about her and you're like i i have never despised a human for their choices and then there's other moments where you're thinking yeah girl get it like it it is so incredible to see the layers and the nuance and such a person you're just like holy crap okay so my sources i started off with an article in jck which is a jewelry vendor for jewelers um of course, I listened to a couple of podcasts. I listened to True Crime Obsessed. Uh, there was another one done by True Crime and Knit, which is, you know, a person who does true crime while she knits, which is a fantastic thought. They have a documentary. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, which is The Life and Crimes of Doris Payne. There is a, an article from Gracia Magazine, Ice Queen, the notorious or the story of the notorious jewel thief Doris Payne, and an article in the New York Post, Doris Payne. Mm-hmm. From dirt poor nurse to world famous jewel thief. I already love her. Yeah, right? You're buckle up because it gets better. A um, little bit about Doris Payne before we start. She had 32 aliases, 
10 dates of birth, 11 social security numbers, and nine names on passports. Okay. Um, did she have, did she hire someone to keep track of all of those? Because I feel like I would say I would mismatch, you know? I mean, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I mean, that said, like all of those aliases, all of those different things, they span six decades. Okay. okay. And every time you hear her spree talked about, the word career is used. Well, when you span six decades, it's a career. You know, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You know, but so she just, she committed to this so hard for so long. And I'm just going to tell her story chronologically because that makes the most sense to me. Okay. Um, I'm so excited. Do you have a picture of her? I do. I'll wait till we get a, I'll wait till we actually start the, the career kickoff, not, not the start of her story, but I'll wait till we like get in and I can show you mugshots. Okay. Until then, I'm just going to build what I think she looks like. Yes. <laughs> um, so her story starts off and I couldn't find her exact age. My brain says age seven, but I couldn't find a source to back that up. But I'm imagining a cute little seven-year-old girl mm-hmm. and her mom sends her to the store to settle her account. So mom gives little Doris some money and says, you know, go run along, give this to the nice shopkeeper. And somewhere during that journey, she stops by a store called Mr. Benjamin's, which is a jewelry store. And she tells the shopkeeper that her mother told her she'd buy her a watch if she got straight A's. And so you're thinking, okay, this is, this is neat. And so the shopkeeper is placating her and he's showing her all of the nice, you know, things and he lets her try on a watch and, you know, he's being very kind and very sweet with her. Well, during this interaction, um, a white customer walks in and suddenly the shopkeeper turns completely on Doris and kicks her out of the store because he doesn't want to be seen being nice to a little black girl. I'm going to assume this is like uh, segregation, just just after segregation. Oh, this is, this is pretty early on. Um, Like she's, 23 at 1952 so this is you know now that you have that back um and i I probably you know but again i don't have her exact age so i can't say what year it was um and so she goes to leave the store pretty dejected because that that is such a crushing experience to go through and as she's walking out of the store she realizes she still has the watch on and so in this (laughs) moment of like wanting to be wanting to embarrass the man who didn't want to be seen being nice to her. She raises her fist in the air and says, I've still got your watch. And so now this man has to like acknowledge the fact that he was serving a little black customer. And she, she says that when she looks back at her life, she admits that stealing for her began, began in response to the racism that she experienced. And a, like a solid quote from her, she goes, I wasn't stealing I just was not giving it back. There's a difference. <laughs> like just saying. Right. And so like, I don't know if she gave the watch back or not, but she definitely embarrassed the shopkeeper. I'm assuming she gave it back. And so then like more of her background, more of her, her life. Um, Payne's mother was beautiful. From from These are her words. I don't have a picture of her mom. And her father he couldn't believe that he was with someone as beautiful as Payne's mother. So he has the logical response where he says that he's just going to beat the pretty out of her. Oh, as you do. 
Right. And so Payne's mother had no idea on how to leave the situation because again, you know, this is 1930s, 1940s, like she just doesn't have a way out. And so Doris is growing up in this situation and she wants more than anything to take care of her mother. So she gets on a bus and goes to Pittsburgh. And when she's there, she steals a diamond and she's like, I, she's like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to give the money to my mom. Well, that's kind of how she's doing it. And then in the documentary, she says that she didn't feel like she was a thief. She felt like she was just smarter. And that if she got that diamond, she was just going to sell it. And the direct quote from her is fantastic. She says, I had to behave so well-bred that they had no idea who I am. I'm sure they don't see me as a Black American woman who just walked in. I say that because I've had so many people say to me that you're not Black. You don't act Black. Yeah. That's a rough one. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I know. I know. So there's going to, like, there's a lot of language. Like, if you watch the documentary, there's a lot of language that she uses that is very problematic by today's standards. And I think a lot of it is just indicative of her age and the product of the environment that she grew up in and all of those things. And so I've done my best to kind of call most of that out. But I mean, again, she does say that she started this career in response to the environment that she and the the experiences that she had. Um, So 1952, she's 23 years old. She steals a $20,000 ring in Cleveland. This is the first, this is really the first big theft that she has. And she feels so guilty that she spends the night in the bathroom of a Greyhound station. Now, I just can't imagine that level of dedication because those bathrooms are gross today. And maybe they weren't bad in, you know, 1952. But I don't, I feel like Greyhound bus station bathrooms have never been good. They were probably built with grime in the sink. That's what I'm thinking. So that next morning, she's feeling so beat up about this that she decides to return the ring and turn herself in. Problem, though, on the way back to the jewelry store, uh, she passes by a pawn shop and she instead hawks the ring for seven grand. Any you want to play the inflation game on um, seven grand in 1952? 25,000 $78,399.21. Okay. So she walks out of there with basically 80 grand and uses it to wipe her guilt away. So I mean, (laughs) like, so she starts doing things like, cause again, she wanted to take care of her mom. So she buys her mom several homes over the course of her career including one home. And this is going to make me, this makes me feel so sick with my own mortgage, a $20,000 four bedroom brick house in a Cleveland suburb of the Shaker Heights in 1966. I hate that for us. I I hate that for us too. The problem with her doing all the stuff to take care of her mom is it doesn't bring them together. Her mom's deeply religious and is so disapproving of Payne's quote choice and career, even though like she, as as much as you know, all of this happens. Her mom never turned down these gifts. Her mom never turned down. She... <laughs> that sounds right, right? But she's just, <laughs> you know, I hate this. You're awful about. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> keys, please. 
Okay, we're going to change the locks, right? Uh, yeah, but you should really definitely stop. I, I like lobster and I like steak. You need to go to the grocery store and pick that up. But you should really knock this off. I saw a pink Thunderbird. I'm just saying. Right. Like, look, I, I still hate you, but I might hate you less. If... Did you go to church on Sunday? I know. <laughs> so Payne ends up having two children. And when she has these children... She names them Ronnie and Rhonda. Um, oh, she, she sends them to go live with their dad. She never marries him. And that's not just at his insistence, but hers. She does send them regular checks to cover their expenses. But Payne knows she's just not cut out to be a mom. So she does this thing where she just leaves. And her dad, their dad tells them, look, your mom's dead. Oh, it's just me. Like, I'm all you have, even though he's cashing all these checks, just like, just like her mom, like, thank you. Yeah, no, nope, you're dead to me. Um, and it's not until the kids are the daughter's 16 that she just turns back up. And it doesn't mean we're not dead, but like, she's <laughs> been gone long enough that the, your mom's dead story has stuck. Like she doesn't come for Christmas, doesn't come for birthdays that she's not sending birthday cards. And the daughter's just shocked, like to know, first off, I've got a mom and she shows up in this full length mink coat. Just that is smoking. exactly the image I had before yeah. you said it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the kids only learn about their mother's career when they see articles in newspapers. What does your mama do for a living? Yeah. Okay. So that is, that is Okay. So again, like I told you, she's complicated. And there's moments where I was like, I can't believe you'd abandon your kids. But at the same point, it's like, she knows that being a mom is not conducive with her choice of career. And I'm like, (laughs) but she's taking care of them, you know? So it's like, okay, well, at least there's that, you know? So there's such a, a good tug of war with her as a human. Like she, in her biography, her autobiography that she wrote, she says, being a woman practicing being a world-class jewel thief wasn't going to be home much. Like, so she recognizes this. That's, wow. Okay, okay. Like, and maybe it's justification for her abandoning her kids, but okay. Um, I mean, like, it would, it, in the long run, them not having to spend the night in the, in jail because your mom brought you to work with her. Right. Um. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me scroll into the last page and I will, I will show you photos of her. Let me hit that fabulous share screen button. All right. Let me know when you can see. Oh, I love it. That's the cover of her autobiography. As it should be. (laughs) And then those are more mug shots. She was gorgeous. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, And you can tell that that is a recent photo. You can tell who started following her at what point in their career by how they talk about her. More recent articles from people who don't care about her or haven't cared about her throughout her entire story, they will refer to her as a a very demure grandmotherly type. But for those who are here for the full story, they say that she has a career that spans so many decades that many police reports refer to her as an incredible beauty who should have been a supermodel, like that level of just gorgeousness. Okay. (laughs) So everybody's crushing on Doris. Everybody's crushing (laughs) on Doris, which, which leads us to 1957. 
She begins dating this Israeli man with deep ties to the criminal underworld. His As nick- you do. He's got the best <laughs> nickname, in, okay. for especially for 57, Babe. I love it. Okay, Babe's real name is Harold Bronfield, so great choice. I would have gone with Babe, too. Right? He's six foot four, and... Uh, Sounds he- like a babe. He has enough legal muscle to protect babe or pain when necessary. Perfect. Right? (laughs) Um, She meets him at a place called Club Caprice. And instantly they hit it off. Babe was, um, he had gone to the University of Alabama and he knew tons of diamond brokers in New York. And he explained to Payne that you get more money out of your, your steals when you deal with the New York diamond brokers. Yeah, but that makes sense. Right? <laughs> and as they're talking and going through this, Babe wants to see her in action. So they get on a plane and head to Chicago. And so Payne gets into character. She gets all dressed up, gets a designer handbag because a you very do. expensive handbag is one of the things that puts shopkeepers at ease. Mm-hmm. So she goes to a jewelry store. She acts super indecisive. And she has them get out several pieces and she keeps moving the pieces around. Uh, The jewelry is in consistent movement. It's kind of like that shell game. She gets the salesperson distracted and then she hides one of them. At that point, she starts asking the shopkeeper about the missing item. After everyone looks for it, Payne finds it. And now you've instantly built trust. It's at this point, Payne would take a smaller piece and tuck it into her pocket and walk right out the door. Because everyone's focused on the bigger one. It's not until that the jewelers are putting the the items away after she's left that they notice anything's missing. Now, imagine having to call your boss. Um... Oh, geez. And like, (laughs) it gets worse. It gets worse. Here's why she, you know, was arrested so infrequently for the amount of things that she stole. Many jewelers never reported the thefts even though they were insured. And the reason is they weren't supposed to have that many pieces of jewelry out in the first place. And by doing so, they were mishandling the jewelry. <laughs> she knew what she was doing. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love her. <laughs> I mean, you're just like, dang, right? <laughs> and so um, all this is happening. And what one of the things I loved, I loved, loved, loved about her is because she grew up just this poor, or she started like as a poor nurse and to figure out and to research who she should hit, what jewelry stores from around the country when she clearly just wasn't like spending her early years going from high-end jewelry store to high-end jewelry store. She was reading Town and Country magazine and seeing what advertisements for upscale stores were in there. And that's how she would choose who to hit. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. Isn't it? Um, Criminal reports over decades detail Payne's ability to put shopkeepers at ease. Quotes are like, she was so attractive. Police wrote after one theft in another document that she was so sharply dressed and looked like a model. How how could she possibly be the one to have stolen it? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, it makes it makes sense when you when you think about just business, how business works. Yeah. Yeah. Step one: be nice. Mm-hmm. And Payne and Babe were described as this dynamic duo. 
Payne had the strong physique and he would protect her and stand up for her. So if someone accused her of theft, he'd be like, excuse me, is there a problem here? You wouldn't accuse this beautiful woman of doing anything on Torrid, would you? And it would be like, <laughs> oh, dang. Um, I know, sir. <laughs> right. You know, but I mean, of course, they're both playing off of each other. She's later identified as the culprit at Jewelry Heist in Philadelphia and Babe's well-connected lawyer handled it. He negotiated with the with the judge for a guilty plea without time served. So basically it's like, how do you plead? Guilty. Okay. okay bye. <laughs> Thanks for playing. And like that's it. And like, oh, wait, but what? Have a nice day. And it's just like, holy cow. So eventually Payne's notoriety takes hold. All of this hits the papers. There's tons of pictures of her. And now she's like, well crap, I can't just keep doing my work here. So she's forced to to travel to smaller cities and towns where she won't be recognized. And eventually this becomes even worse. And then it's harder for her when Payne dies in 68 from, quote, complications from cosmetic surgery. And I don't know, like, what the surgery was necessarily for. Like, were they trying to obscure his identity? Like, what was the... Face transplant. Right? I mean, who knows? But either way... He passes on. Um, and there's a couple of hits that she does that are are just so incredible that I, I have to go into depth because you really, when you're reading about her, you you either you hear about one one of one of the following. Starting chronologically, the Monte Carlo hit. In 1974, it's a summer day. She's stepping out of the Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo. And she's told those who make her acquaintance that she's the wife of, a, of the famous director, Odo Priming, Priminger. And instantly, everyone well, you know, receives her very well. Although those who know her personally call her Doris. So automatically, it's a little bit different. You know, if, if they know her from previously, they're like, oh, yeah, Doris. By this time, she's 44. <laughs> okay. And this, this Monte Carlo hit is the final stop on her European crime spree for for this this tour she goes to um the cartier and in this this luxury boutique in part of this is going to come from watching the documentary the life and crime of doris Payne. she says the salesperson rounded up pieces to show me including a 10 and a half carat diamond ring that was worth five hundred and fifty thousand. Oh, right uh so then, but he set it down and went to another patron who just come into the shop. Hmm. Like, so he gets distracted and she just kind of walks out with it. So after leaving the shop with the ring, she makes the mistake of not changing her clothes, which is something she historically did. And as she goes straight to the airport, because why would you not if you've got, you know, a ring that's 2.5 million in your pocket and she gets picked up at the airport. She ends up like the police, they, they do like a a hasty search. They can't find it immediately. And she starts to pretend that she has a head cold and she sneezes the ring into a tissue and then later hides the ring in the pantyhose. So when they're doing a strip search, they don't find it. Now, first off, if you're letting woman stay in her pantyhose, that means there's a couple layers involved. I don't think you did a very thorough strip search. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm just not thinking... But I'm assuming that there's other issues involved because they just 
Monte Carlo at the time didn't have a facility to house female detainees. And so they put her up at the Four Seasons. As you do. I mean, like (laughs) every part of this is more mind blowing than the last. And so at the hotel, she's got a guard outside of her front door and she asked the guard, she goes, Hey, can you go into my bag and get my nail clippers? And I also have a a hole in my, my, or I need to fix the hem of my skirt. Can you get me my needle and thread in there? So they, they give her these items and she uses the nail clippers to pry the stone out of the mounting. And she takes that 10 and a half carat diamond and sews it into her clothing. Oh my gosh. It stays in that clothing for the nine months she was detained because I guess things are a bit different over there. They can't find the diamond. They can't find the ring. They end up letting her go. So she ends up throwing the the mounting of that ring into the Mediterranean Sea and then flies off and disposes of the or sells the diamond. I love her. I know. <laughs> I know. Just I'm over here like, get it, girl. Get it. You see where you're just like, <laughs> oh, I am team Doris. Okay, so another good hit. Uh, 1975, she's been stealing diamonds around the globe for decades. And when she's 44, she sets her eyes on her latest target, which is the world famous Bulgari jeweler in Rome. And it's here that she's like, oh my gosh, I almost bet my match. There's this handsome young clerk that didn't have this special quality that she looked for in a mark. One that was both this great combination of eager to please and stupid. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> I mean, you, if you have a type, you know it. And some, like, she has some brilliant quotes in this part. She said, he moved too fast, as watchful as a hawk, and didn't give her the chance to confusion. She says, quote, this dude was trained like a stripper, Payne writes. But I was going to find a way to flip it on him. She moved at a dizzying pace, putting on rings, taking off rings, necklaces, until the, the clerk wasn't able to keep up. And she slips a yellow diamond ring worth thousands onto her middle finger. He didn't notice my hand move like a snake. And that's when she asks to use the powder room and disappears onto the streets of Rome before the cloak realized or clerk realized what happened. I love him even more, I think. <laughs> I mean, the fact that she said he was like a stripper, I'm just like. What does that even mean? I don't know, but I want to know. Miss Payne, we're going to need you to answer our questions. Oh my gosh. Wouldn't that be incredible? Because I, um, I, I, I have questions and um, for reasons. Uh, uh, not yeah. because I plan to get into nefarious activity, but I have questions. <laughs> I mean, and I feel like we should probably say this several times during this episode of like, yes, stealing is wrong. Yes, stealing is bad. Yes, stealing hurts people. But damn. But you damn. gotta admire for it. Oh right? my gosh. Oh, I mean, okay. So the Bulgari hit was the last in her five-day four-city larceny tour. And she walks off with 55 grand or with a 55 grand watch from Van Cleef and Apales. Our, our Pels, and several diamond and emerald pieces from Gareth and Garrett and Co. That was a London jeweler to the British crown. Oh, that's super embarrassing. Right? <laughs> By the time she's back on the plane to the United States, she had about a million dollars worth of jewelry in today's money on her. How do you 
check that bag. You just like, wear it all. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, she I guess I guess I mean like you got the coat to match the jewelry, so I guess you're good. Right. Like it's not like she's well, I mean, think about it. If you see someone with a mom bun and a ten and a half carat diamond, but a really expensive sweatsuit, you're gonna be like, all right, this checks. I mean, because she's not wearing, you know, some disheveled clothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even if she dresses down, she's going to end up wearing her coat's still ten thousand dollar coat. So here yeah. we are. Yeah, it, right. It's it's all going to check out. Yeah. Oh, her husband just works in the oil fields. Yeah, you know, he just comes from the old money. It's mm. fine. It's an inherited ring. He never paid a dime. It's his great grandmother's. Yeah, she loved that for him. <laughs> and then, like her fa- her favorite hit is this whole catch me if you can moment that occurs in 1980 after she has quote a field day stealing ro- Rolexes from a shop in Zurich. <laughs> How do you not love this woman? Oh, oh, was this went on a field day to Rolex? Yeah, just. So, okay, following this, she ends up deciding that she's just going to go to a night a nightclub. And typically she doesn't drink alcohol, but today she broke her rule. The problem is like, she goes, she goes, next thing I know, I'm up, I'm dancing, I'm having a great time. The problem is she didn't know that for whatever reason, they live broadcast everyone dancing at this club on air. And so everyone's watching the city's, you know, residents dancing and like, they go, oh my gosh, wait. That, that's the chick who stole from me. And so all of a sudden the lights come on, the authorities grab her and they escort her to what should have been, should have been a nonstop train to Geneva. They put her on there by herself. Like, okay, we're going to trust you to stay on this nonstop train. And when it stops, we're going to have some other authorities pick you up, but we're not going to send a chaperone with you. The like problem- that's their fault. Oh my gosh. It gets so much worse. The train actually does stop for water. I don't know why I decided to stop for water. I feel like that was something they maybe should have picked up in Zurich. But as soon as it stops for, for water, Payne says, she's like, you know, uh, I, I, I think I'm not going to stay here any longer. And so she jumps from the train and she ended up with tons of scratches and thorns in her hair. And she starts wandering through a dark cornfield until she finds a taxi and it takes her to a hotel. And it's only then she realizes she still has the stolen Rolex on her, although she doesn't remember taking it. And she says, quote, I didn't know what the hell was wrong with me. Maybe I'm too old for this shit, I told myself. <laughs> because I went out drinking. Right. After my field day at the Rolex store. Oh, my gosh. I need this to be a movie like yesterday. It should have been. It should have yeah. been. And later, I'll, I'll explain why it should have been. Um. Years later, this is where she's racked up, you know, the 32 aliases, the 11 social security numbers and the passports and nine different names. Then it says she is unapologetic and insists that her elaborate bruises and crimes have always been victimless and have nothing to do with her moral fiber. Because she's like building schools and paying off cafeteria bills, isn't she? (laughs) I mean, that's that's kind of how she paints herself, but she's basically like, these were victimless crimes. And the San Diego police chief detective, Thomas Jacks, disagrees. He, in the comment- in the documentary about her life, he admits that she's a nice old lady and she seems like a mom and grandparents. 
this is after he comes into contact with her for her January 10, 2010 arrest for stealing an $8,900 emerald cut diamond ring from Macy's. Oh. Uh, and he decides, or he adds that, uh, I think she's romanticized this point beyond what it really is. She's a thief and what she does really affects people. And it was the, the, the January 2010 arrest that really is the first thing that clued me onto her. Cause I was like, I read about that in real time. And my big takeaway wasn't, you know, to not pull so many pieces of jewelry out. It wasn't to do all these things. It was, there's a $9,000 ring at Macy's. I was, (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, we're at Macy's. Yeah. Like, (laughs) wait, back up one, back up one. You know, it's almost like when, when you hear about, you know, cops doing drug busts and they're like hey, we had you know four billion dollars in cocaine and you're thinking like that is some weird fuzzy math like maybe i don't do drugs and <laughs> but i'm feeling like that's you know that's the a lot the entire gdp of a small developing country is probably not what you pulled out of out of a vw bus maybe it's some really good stuff it mm, has to, to be so okay so going back to the story her her lawyer you know, during the 2010 case, um, makes is, you know, puts up a great defense for her as great as she could. She tells the judge that her clients never hurt anybody and she's just not forceful. She's like, you know, she be, be lenient on her. I mean, she's, she's just so sweet kind of deal. That's her defense. It's like, she's just so kind. How can you be mad at her? I mean, honestly, how can you be? There is no, I know for a fact, I couldn't be a judge. For a fact, I'd be like, mm, "I dig your story, girlfriend. Go for it." You know what? Yeah, your motivation, your 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 origin story checks. So yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. It's fine. Like, you know, it's it, case tossed. <laughs> but I mean, you hear this, and you're like, "Okay, villains aren't born; they're made." If she is a villain, you're like, "I I I'm tracking." I you know, in her situation, who among us? Yeah. So. Over the recent years, they describe surveillance video and the internet and all of these modern innovations as things that have curtailed Payne's ability to camouflage her identity and operate as a criminal in all of the cities around the world because everybody knows who she is, like to the point where I was in some no-name jewelry store and I'm being shown her picture saying, you don't fall for this old, any old person, let alone this one. You know, like we Do are showing not, <laughs> yeah, like we're having our own work meeting about this. And yes, she's currently arrested, but that doesn't mean anything because she drunk the train in Zurich once. Right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and was put up at the Four Seasons in Monte Carlo a different time. So for, for nine yeah. months, for you nine fully months, know how to hold. Pr- I love people. So, OK, let, I'm almost done, but let's let's continue going through this in 2011. At age 80, she's found guilty on two counts of theft and is sentenced to five years behind bars in connection for the Macy's case. And it's here that she's released early because of overcrowding. So she only serves three years. <laughs> but since she's been worth or been been arrested multiple times for pilfering jewelry. Like notably in 2013, she's arrested when she uh, lifts a 12 carat white gold ring worth 22 grand from a boutique in in palm desert 20 or july of 2015 i'm just going to go through a quick rap sheet of her recent endeavors 
Um, July 2015, she's reported for stealing again and was believed to have stolen a $33,000 ring, although that one's in, that wasn't proven. That's unsubstantiated. That's allegedly. In J October 23rd of 2015, she's caught on security cameras putting Christian Dior earrings valued at yeah, 700 bucks in her pocket in Atlanta. In That's really minuscule compared to everything else. I know, but Maybe I feel she just liked those ones. They were probably really pretty. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. In 2016, she's arrested again for trying to steal a $2,000 diamond necklace from the Von Moore department store in Perimeter Mall in Dunwoody, Georgia. 2017, so a recent one, she's arrested. This one's so awful sad. She's arrested for stealing $86.22 worth of merchandise from an Atlanta area Walmart. And she did this oh. while wearing a ankle bracelet from a previous arrest. I knew, I knew when you said this one's so sad, I'm like, it's Walmart. Yeah. And she, it's like, <laughs> it's like groceries and electronics and like stuff where you're like, she just wanted to see if she could do it. She wanted to expand oh. upon her, what's tried and true. Um, so years ago, they announced they were going to make a movie about her and it was going to star, star Halle Berry. That's who I had pictured. Okay. Okay. Yep. It never came to be. Hmm. And from what I can tell now, Doris is 92 and she's living in a penthouse and her two adult children visit her from time to time. Aww. And I'm going to end on a quote from her. Stealing jewelry. It was just exciting. It also became a social outlet for me. And that was my everything. I don't regret being a, a jewel thief. Do I regret getting caught? Yes. Ah! <laughs> And we go visit Ms. Doris. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the fact that she's still alive makes me so happy. Could you but imagine like, that being your grandma? Oh, my God. I'd love her. Be like, Grandma, tell me your stories. Like, you know how some grandmas teach you how to cook? Some grandmas teach you how to knit. Some grandmas garden with you. This grandma be like, okay, nanny, I need you to walk me through um, the Monte Carlo heist. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. For days, while you, while you braid my hair, like I, these are these are the things I need you to tell me about. Um, like like yesterday, please. Yeah, yeah. I I need to know how to move my hand like a snake into my own jacket. <laughs> Just ah! I was thinking too, like through this whole thing, you know, this is gonna sound really weird, but like you know how um, the world seems so different in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, like the minute you said Macy's, I was like. Oh, wow. But the Macy's hit was recent. I know. And that's when it hit me. Like, we went from Monte Carlo and Zurich to Macy's. It, right? Right. And it's not, it's like not anything at her, but it's just thinking of like the state of the world and how so vastly different 1955 was mm -hmm. to 2023. And like, she said something in the documentary that was mind blowing to me. And anybody in New York, they're gonna be like, hell yeah, we knew that. Of course we knew that. She said that when she went to Europe, her being all dressed up with a designer bag, you know, just putting on airs, they bought it hook, line, and sinker. But she couldn't pull that same stunt in New York because they were all suspicious of her. It didn't matter how she was dressed. It didn't matter how expensive her bag was. They were onto her from the jump. Huh. As New Yorkers. Yeah, they're just not here for it. We're not playing a game, ma'am. Yeah.
Meanwhile, oh. Zurich, they're like, oh, this ring? Yeah, hold on a second. Let me go help him over here. He just needs a watch battery changed. It'll be fine. It'll be quick. Just, 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 mm, right back. Yeah, I won't even need to put this in a lock case. You you do you, ma'am. <laughs> I love her. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, so I am all about Doris Payne. And I also love that you have a connection. Like I was specifically told to not cater to this woman. (laughs) To this woman specifically. Like, you know. I love that. I can safely say I've never met a jewel thief that I know of. Same. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) I'm so excited. I love it. This might be my favorite story. (laughs) So no pressure, because I think we've ran out of time to do two stories, because I feel like mine kind of went on for a bit. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Your choice. I can hit you with mine, or we can can reconvene, and I can hit you with it. Then it doesn't matter to me. I'm cool either way. Well, let's let's record yours at another time, and then that way our listeners don't have to sit here for four hours, you know, hearing amazing (laughs) stories, but... Oh, Doris! I love you, Grandma Doris! I know! Oh my goodness. Oh, I know. Okay. So on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to call it. I'm going to say that if you want to, you know, find us online, um, we will, we, we have the, the, we're, we're on, I'm going to delete most of this. We are on Instagram and TikTok at unhinged.history. Uh, I know that there's no post there right now as the day I record this, but I promise you there will be. We're going to get that going. I swear to you, I will I will figure this out and I will fix my computer come hell or high water. Now, if you want to send us fan mail about Grandma Doris and how she'd be amazing, we promise we can't deliver it to her, but you can do that. Or if and- you know Doris. Oh, please. <laughs> we would love to high five her. Oh, yeah. I mean... I know, I'll bring my own casserole because I I don't think she spent her career making them or learning how to. Oh but... yeah, we'll bring snacks. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. pretty sure she didn't cook. We'll bring snacks. I mean, it will bring a couple of different beverage beverage types. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. she started drinking now, but I mean, wine, tea, we're here for it. Yeah, we got it. We got it. Okay, and to do that, unhinged.historypod at gmail.com. So all that to say, goodbye. Bye. Bye.